those who were here last week, you might remember as part of the introduction to the message, I was reflecting on one of the great injustices perpetuated in the schoolyard when a teacher would select uh, uh, teams, you know, point two captains they would choose and how absolutely humiliating that um, environment is for the person who was third last, second last or, or worst last. I went away thinking about that after the sermon last week and realised that actually there's all sorts of injustices perpetuated, isn't there? We don't even think about one of them uh, that some of you will have reflected on and others will be gloriously ignorant to uh, is in relation to the alphabet. Now, you think about that one for a moment. If your name uh, is something like Aaron Anderson, this has never hit your radar. But if your name's Zachary Williams, it absolutely will have hit your radar. Because typically what happens uh, in schools, and not only in school, we've done it here today for ease of, of finding things. Even the list of names of our members is in alphabetical order. And if you're amongst the A's or the B's or the C's, you're living it pretty, pretty, really. You know? You're always first to be called out in the classroom role or... Uh, it's easy to find your name. If your name starts with W or X or Y or even worse, Z, you're always down the bottom of the list, the last, when it's line up in alphabetical order or let's sort this out in alphabetical order or whatever. What a privilege those whose names uh, are at the top of the alphabet enjoy. And you might not think it actually matters all that much, but it does if you go to St Vincent's down here, the, the op shop. Because <clears throat> from time to time, typically just before I go on holidays, Diana says to me, you need to find some books to read. There's no shortage of books that I should be reading. Uh, but, you know, for something a bit light, so I'll go to the op shop. And Vinnie's is fantastic. They've got bookshelves full of novels. And they're all arranged by author in alphabetical order. And so this is what you do, you know, you read from the top. This is how we, how we work. The top left across to the right. That's how we read, right? Um, I think it's right. <laughs> Just having a moment of crisis there. But yeah, we're not in China. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I'm looking for a book, the authors whose names start with A, A, B, C, D, I'm working my way through E, F, G, H, I don't have a clue uh, what I'm going to do here. Um, and on it goes, M, N, oh dear, I've run out of patience and time. I don't even get to the authors whose names start after the letter O. That's a great injustice to them, isn't it? That actually is probably why, in some contexts, people write under pen names. You know, if you had a name like uh, Zachary Williams, you might actually change your name so that when your book is in there at St Vincent's and people are looking for a $2 read in the holidays, they're going to actually find yours first rather than, um, than someone else's. Having a name that starts with one of the early letters of the alphabet is a great privilege. And, of course, the word privilege, I want to talk about privilege today, is attached to all sorts of things and it can have... Uh, very positive and negative overtones. Sometimes negative because we live in a world where we are increasingly anxious about one group of people having some inherent advantage over another. But the word privilege doesn't have to be negative, does it? It can actually be 
really positive. So, for example, I remember this. One day I was at a, a, a meeting that the local council had organised, quite a big gathering of all of the, uh, the non-for-profits and this and that that came together to discuss something. And it just so happened I was sitting at the table with the mayor of the city and she was lamenting the fact that as mayor she never had the opportunity to talk to a big group in the community for any length of time on topics that were important to her without there being interruptions or without other stuff pressing. And I said to her, you should have my job then. <laughs> and her eyes kind of boggled because I said, you know what I get to do every week? I get to speak to something in the order of 200 to 300 people for up to 30 to 40 minutes on a topic completely of my choosing without interruption. I was just waiting for someone. Uh, because what I was going to say then was, because if someone does interrupt, I will use the collective power of the group to shame them into submission. <laughs> she said, that's unbelievable. What job do you have? And I told her. And she said, no, I don't really want that job. <laughs> so privilege is not always a bad thing at all. In fact, let me spin this really positively. The opportunity to publicly teach the word of God is an enormous privilege. And I take that very seriously. I take it seriously because of the warning of James chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so uh, we take that privilege here very, very seriously indeed. Today I want to focus on that word privilege and how it relates to um, the privilege that God's church enjoys. And as we think about the privilege that God's church enjoys, perhaps... Uh, we might default to thinking historically, you know, in the past, in the West, the church enjoyed significant privilege, but that's not the kind of privilege that I want to think about, because I'm not actually convinced that was all that helpful, that kind of privilege. A hundred years ago, for example, uh, the sermon from the Collins Street Baptist Church would be published in the Argus on Monday morning. Can you imagine that? The message preached in the church would actually be published in the newspaper, uh, the following week. Amazing. And the church had a very strong voice in the world. And that was fine for its time. But that sort of privilege, I don't think we ought to be hankering for that. Because in some senses, it was perhaps unhealthy for the church. What I want to think about uh, is the privilege that we have described for us. And Ivan, I'm going to need to rely on you because I've totally forgotten to bring the clicker with me uh, to work through uh, these things. The privilege that we have described for us in a passage that we ran into last week as I was thinking about the people in the church uh, that is described by 1 Peter in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10 where Peter said, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What a privilege we have. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Last week, as part of our, uh, <laughs> as part of our series that we're doing, thank you, sir, uh, you're a gem, um, I spoke with you a little bit about the people who, made up, who make up the church. And there are three things that came through in that message. First of all, we don't get to choose who makes up the body of Christ. That's something that God does, the sovereign choice of God. God chooses who... Uh, is part of his church, and I'm glad for that. 
because that means we are a very eclectic, mixed bunch of people. If it was up to me, everyone would be like me, probably. We're attracted. <laughs> That's not even funny. <laughs> because we're drawn to people like ourselves, aren't we? I might choose a couple of randoms just for fun. Um, but God, God chooses all sorts of people. The second point that we talked about last week is that we're called to be part of a body. When God looks at his church, he doesn't see just individuals. He sees us through the lens of the body. And that is really significant. And that communitarian element, if I can use that language, that idea of community comes strongly through the passage that we're going to look at today. You are a chosen people. You are a community. And we need to recapture some of that thinking in our time. And because we're called to be part of a body, protecting the unity of the body is, paramount, uh, is of paramount importance to God. And so uh, God encourages us repeatedly through the scriptures to, to work hard at being unified and in fact acting in a manner that undermines the unity of the body of Christ as a serious offence to God. And so as we move on today, uh, we're going to think about the privilege that the church has been given by God. I'm only going to look at the first two of these things today, partly because um, Matt's in Albury, but uh, he would he would 100% agree, and I've said this to our staff, um, pastors have, every pastor has an internal clock when it comes to preaching. Um, that's not funny either. I don't know why you're laughing at that. Some will, get, some will get done and dusted in 20 minutes, some will get done and dusted in 30 minutes, some go a lot longer, and some, well, their clock's broken. <laughs> when I'm preparing, I think to myself, I'm going to try and make sure I keep this short and tight, and then I start telling stories, just like I am now, and things, it goes back to the normal kind of default time. And when I was preparing this sermon, I thought, look, there's four wonderful points here. The Orthodox Baptist sermon's only three points, but we don't have to be Orthodox. We're going to only look at two. What does it mean to be a chosen people and a royal priesthood? You can have a look at holy nation, people belonging to God, again, community um, at your leisure. Now, of course, the idea of being chosen can have positive or negative connotations too. For example, if you finished year 12, you're wondering what you're going to do next year, you're hoping to be able to go to university, you get a letter from the university to say, we have awarded you a scholarship to the course that you want to do, you've been chosen to do that. It's wonderful, isn't it? Being chosen has some very positive connotations. It can also have some negative connotations. When I was a small boy, uh, from time to time, uh, my mum would cook uh, corned beef. You're familiar with corned beef, of course. She'd do it in a slow cooker. I was never a great fan of stuff that came out of the slow cooker, I have to say. It was always, always absolutely nourishing and good food, but I was not a great fan of the slow cooker. And at the end of the corned beef meals, the corned beef would be taken out, cut up, served, some would be reserved for later on. What remained in that slow cooker was this cold water, congealed fat and all that kind of stuff, and mum would look at my brother and I and say, OK, I need one of you two to take this down the back and dump it at the back of the block. Being chosen to do that job, oh, no, that wasn't so good. <laughs> because you had to walk all the way down the back with this whole smelly, heavy thing and then try and tip it out without it splashing back on you. And oh, it was just awful. 
<laughs> so being chosen on the one hand, very positive. Being chosen sometimes, not so positive. But when Peter started this letter, <clears throat> if you back up, if you've got your Bibles open, actually 1 Peter chapter 1, the very first thing that Peter did was address the people he was writing to as God's elect. You are, you are God's elect, chosen people. And throughout this letter, perhaps, um, to emphasise just how significant that is, Peter reiterates this idea time and time again, you are chosen people, you are special, you are privileged. And this idea of being chosen very much echoes the Old Testament, of course, back in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be a people unto himself. You will be my people and I will be your God. We know the story of Israel, that they failed in many respects, but don't be under misapprehension. Our choosing doesn't replace God's choosing. It's not like God's plan A failed and so we're plan B. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, we've actually been grafted in to that choosing. And so uh, echoes these thoughts in a number of other passages. 2 Thessalonians uh, from the beginning, from the beginning, even before we were created, God chose us to be saved. Uh, Ephesians, I think we've got this passage here, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, Paul's very explicitly said, he chose us before the world was made so that we would be his people, people without blame before him because of his love. God has already decided to make His own children, make us his own children through Jesus Christ. That's amazing. God foreknew us. He chose us before the creation. He selected every person who's a follower of Christ here. And there's much encouragement to be had in God's grace in choosing us. But let me just jump to a couple of pastoral implications. Some really obvious things, perhaps some really not so obvious things. The first one, being chosen ought never cause us to become proud, but deeply, deeply humble. God's choosing of his church is always based on grace and so ought to lead to humility. Uh, Paul wrote, of course, you're familiar with Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthian church. It's a fascinating letter. It's a church that was in all sorts of strife in the sense that they thought they were something special. They thought they were set apart from all of God's other churches. They had some special spiritual revelation that made them special. And, and Paul takes them to task in the most amazing way in 1 Corinthians. In the face of their arrogance, Paul said to them, think about what you were before you became followers of Christ. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. None of you were noble by birth. You're part of God's church because God chose you. You are part of God's church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the very start of the letter, he says to the church in Corinth, and God's chosen everywhere. You're part of a bigger family. You've been chosen by God. Another pastoral application worth reflecting on, particularly in light of the recent referendum where attitudes towards race here in our country were raised and discussed, it's good to be reminded, I think, from time to time that there's no place for racism in the church. When the NIV translation I use reads, you are a chosen people, the Greek actually can quite legitimately be translated as saying, you are a chosen race. You are part of a whole new race. And being chosen is the end of racism for the Christian. Now, what I mean to say is, there will always be differences 
and our faith will be expressed differently in different cultural contexts. We see that beautifully expressed here in this context. Later this afternoon, the Congolese people, again tonight with the evening congregation. But it was a wonderful experience, even this week. I was just wandering out of the shopping centre, and in the door wandered one of my fellow pastors, Kamashonda Watoga, one of the pastors from the Congolese congregation. He was fully decked out in his delivery man gear. I don't exactly know what he was delivering, didn't matter, because as soon as he saw me, he walks up, he said, oh, my brother. And it's not just an expression, it's actually an expression of relationship because we're part of the same race, the Christian race, God's chosen people. And it will be appropriate to have some of those differences expressed, but denigrating or belittling or treating as inferior or telling off-colour jokes or extracting advantage or demanding privilege or special rights over another person based on their race flies in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture because we're one family in Christ and we need to remember that. And in the face of uh, the uncertain world that we live in, it's good to be reminded that God shapes history on behalf of his chosen people. This is actually a really interesting one to think about because... If you go to Matthew 24, which a number of people have quoted to me over these past couple of weeks, particularly with the crisis in the Middle East, you know, wars and rumours of wars, don't we love quoting that when anything goes on? In Matthew chapter 24, specifically in verse 22, uh, it tells us that, uh, sorry, prior to verse 22, there will be false prophets, there will be wars and rumours of wars, we've talked about that, nation will rise against nation, there will be persecution, many will turn away from their faith. And then there's some uncertainty whether Jesus was talking prophetically about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans or of a time yet to come, or perhaps both, which is often how biblical prophecy works. Verse 22 says, If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Catch this. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. You hear what Matthew said there, what Jesus said and Matthew reported? For the sake of the elect, God intervenes in history. God changes the course of history for his chosen people. What a wonderful application that is. And so we can be confident in our trust in God. You are a chosen people. The second, uh, sorry, I missed that one. The second uh, statement that Paul uh, makes here, uh, sorry, Peter makes here worth reflecting on is this. You are a royal priesthood. Now, we're going to take a deep dive here for a second, so stick with me. I'll try and make this as, as simple to follow as I can. But it's actually really interesting and really significant. The words royal and priest were not used in the same sentence in the Old Testament. In some senses, royal priest is an oxymoron, a bit like um, I'm going to draw a square round. Those two things just can't exist in the same space. Because under the Levitical priesthood, you could only be a priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. Nobody from outside the tribe of Levi could be a priest. And the royal line came from the tribe of Judah. You could not be king unless you came from the royal line of Judah. There was no overlap between those two. From the time of Moses and the introduction of the priesthood, all the priests came exclusively from the line of Levi, and likewise uh, the kings from the tribe of Judah. If you were a priest, 
uh, you had a special job. Your job was to inquire of the Lord. Your job was to oversee the sacrifices that were made. Your job was to make sure things were done right in terms of worship. If you were the king, your job was to rule the people. Two quite distinct jobs, two quite significant differences. On one occasion, uh, if you have a look in 1 Samuel chapter 13, King Saul was getting a little bit impatient while he was waiting for Samuel to turn up. The priest, the king was getting impatient. The priest hadn't turned up. And so Saul thought, I'll, I'll do the work of the priest. And didn't it go well for him? No, it didn't. So you don't see the overlap. There is no overlap. However, having said that, there was one king who acted as king and priest. That king was the exception. Do you want to have a guess who it was? It was King David. On two occasions, we have a record of David acting as king and priest. You can check these out. I won't put them up on the screen. 1 Samuel 30. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7, David says, uh, give me the ephod, I'm going to inquire of the Lord. And that was fine. He was allowed to do that. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17, David uh, was celebrating when the ark was brought back and he offered sacrifices. He oversaw that. So the question is, even though through history these two roles could not be brought together, how come David got away with it? The answer to that is that God gave David a revelation and made him a prototype, a kind of a king who foreshadowed a king who is yet to come. This should start ringing bells, right? King David, who foreshadows another king. Want to have a guess who that was? It was Jesus, of course. We know that from the scriptures. We know from 1 Samuel chapter, my goodness, I've written, and I don't know which is right now, um, in my haste this morning when I was editing this, I've put 1 Samuel chapter 123. <laughs> It'll either be 1 Samuel 12 or 1 Samuel 13. You can check it out. Verse 14. Uh, David was a man described as a man after God's own heart. That's echoed in Acts and in Isaiah as well. Um, God used him, this man, to foreshadow a king who was, according to the author of the book of Hebrews, a king and a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, oh my goodness, we're just confusing things here, aren't we? Who on earth's Melchizedek and what's he got to do with the whole story? As I said, we're going to do a deep dive. Melchizedek we meet all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. Abram had been on a mission to rescue his nephew Lot. As he returned from battle, he met a most unusual character, a guy by the name of Melchizedek who was described as the king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, and a priest of the Lord Most High. Where does this guy come from? We don't know. And he must have caused all sorts of grief for the Jewish people through history because they love to be able to figure out the identity through the genealogies. But as the author of Hebrews says, he was without father and mother, without genealogy. We don't know this guy, but he was a king and a priest. But here's the thing, he actually predated the Mosaic priesthood, the tribe of Levi. So we have in history this guy, Melchizedek, I'm trying to work left to right here, uh, Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest, before the Levitical priesthood. We have the Levitical priesthood where only Levites could be priests and only from the tribe of Judah to be king. We have King David who actually married the two because God was foreshadowing another 
king and priest in Christ who was like that one way back there. Is this all making sense? I hope so. And this is why it's important to us. Jesus came as the king who rightfully rules over everything because he is God. And Jesus is also installed as our great high priest because he is the one who offered the ultimate sacrifice, his life for our sin. And so it's absolutely appropriate, the author of the book of Hebrews says, you know, we've got Jesus like Melchizedek, this one who does both, but in a superior way. Now, there's the history. This is where the application is absolutely fantastic for us. And this is why I think Peter was so keen to tell his church, you are a royal priesthood. Those two things have now come together. Because, and this might take some getting your head around, we too are kings. And we too are priests. You are a royal priesthood. We're kings in so much as God ordains for us or has tasked, let's say, even commissioned us to take back spiritual territory for the kingdom of God. That's what kings do. As sin has been defeated in us, even in our own lives, we're back to that place where prior to the fall, God created man and woman to act as his regents, as his royal representatives, to reign and to rule on his behalf. And we serve with the empowering of God's spirit to expand his kingdom with authority and influence. And we know that Jesus had said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Matt's going to talk about that in a couple of weeks' time. And so we are kings. We reign with Jesus. He's called us to a royal role. And we are priests also in so much as we have access directly to God in his throne room. We don't have to go. This is wonderful. We don't have to go through other priests to hear the word of the Lord. We don't have to have others mediate God for us. We have access to God ourselves by the living presence of the Spirit in us. We're priests too in that we are called to make sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, and through the scripture you'll find many references to this. For instance, uh, just a couple in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we bring a sacrifice of praise. It's part of our job bringing sacrifices, a sacrifice of praise. If you uh, back up into the Old Testament, uh, you'll find in Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken and humble spirit. We come with, with a humble and broken spirit. And so we are kings, we are royal, and we are priests. Not something that happened through the Old Testament, but is ours in Christ. And as we've um, just looked briefly at those couple of things, I hope one of the things that you can be impressed by, again, and I am emphasising this, uh, uh, perhaps overemphasising it perhaps, is the emphasis that there is in what Peter says on community. The language is not of individuality. You are a chosen people. It doesn't say you are chosen individuals. You are a royal priesthood. You serve in this role in the community, the language of the body that I spoke about last week. And this is where the rubber really hits the road because God calls his church to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God who together proclaim the praises of God to the nations. 
And the priestly sacrifices we offer in the body actually take the form of mutual submission to others in the body as well. And so we honour others in the body before we honour ourselves. Our collective holiness as priests is to be a strong witness and testimony to the world around us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, we're still in the same book, just a couple of verses beyond uh, the statement about being a chosen people. Peter says, Live good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Our collective witness actually matters. And in light of this too, can I say, we should never ever come to the body of Christ, to the church, with the expectation that we will just have blessings poured upon us by others. We actually ought to come with a posture of saying, how can I bless the body? How can I bless those who are here, part of God's church? And one of the other things that I was reflecting on through this week as I sat with this passage is the absolutely high view that Peter has of the church. When I say high view, I don't mean like high church in the, in the sense of bells and smells and all that kind of stuff. But the very, the very um, I don't know what other word to use, the high view that how important is this? How significant is this? Peter's church can't have been any more holy than any others. They wouldn't have been a church that was more godly or more evangelistic or more worshipful or more connected than any other church. And yet he speaks of the church in the most exalted terms. You are these privileged people. And so I wonder sometimes why it is that we're so quickly given to criticising the body of Christ. Why we're given so quickly to criticising the local expression of the body of Christ. We obviously need to be able to acknowledge our weaknesses and failures and address them, and hopefully we do that. But we ought to maintain some sort of balance between acknowledging those weaknesses and celebrating the beauty there is in the bride of Christ, because that's who we are. Celebrating the beauty that there is in being God's chosen people. And I think it's only when we fully grasp, appreciate and willingly contribute to the profound beauty of the church that we then have any right to proceed to critique. The church, even this church, is God's community of grace and the channel through which God has chosen to express his grace to the world. With the help of, God's, uh, with the help of God, we too need to be people of grace to manifest that in our life together. Over these next couple of weeks, we're going to continue thinking about the church. Next week, Matt's going to talk about the promise uh, there is for the church, that God will build his church, that Jesus will build his church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And then we're going to talk about the potential of the church, what it is that God has as part of his vision for us, the Great Commission, the power of the church, the life and work of the Holy Spirit at work here in the community. So I commend those next few weeks to you. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to then invite Bob and the team to lead us. Just in terms of uh, practicality, uh, we are going to convene our meeting. I have said, and most of you will be familiar with this, uh, we won't start our meeting before 11.30 uh, this morning. That gives those who are either in the afternoon congregation or the evening congregation or not able to be here this morning to come along and know roughly what time we're going to start. The meeting will be in here. For those members here, uh, not only members, but those who will be here for the meeting, please indicate that on the uh, attendance roll. 
If you're not a member and you want to be here, just let, let us know that you're here too. We value that because you're part of our family. We've got two meetings to conduct. The first one is the a meeting to consider the merge with Albury. And uh, if that uh, vote is successful, then the budget meeting, which is the second part of our meeting, we'll move through both of those reasonably quickly because that information has been in hand for such a long time. So there will be space for conversation, but we won't um, dilly-dally around. That means there's going to be a little bit of time after our conclusion of this service for a couple of things. First of all, for people who might value prayer, there's always that opportunity. We didn't do the stand up and, and talk to people at the start of the service. You can do that after the service. And sometimes it's really hard to stop that at the start of the service. And you're going to have a bit more space to do it this time. So enjoy that opportunity. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you again uh, that you have entrusted your mission into our hands, into the hands of the church. And Lord, we are so, um, well, in some senses, painfully aware of the shortcomings and the inadequacies that we live with as fallen people. But we're challenged, I guess, too, by the very exalted words of Peter here that, that look at the church and speak of it in the highest terms, the bride of Christ. It's really significant, God. And so I pray that you will help us even as we consider our life together today in the meaning that's coming, but not only in that context, in whatever, whatever context it might be, in the simple conversation we might have with someone we don't know, in the way that we contribute to the life of the body, in how we give, how we serve, our attendance, whatever it might be, our challenges afresh, Lord, to be the kind of people that we want our church to be, be the kind of people you want your church to be. And so fill us with your grace and love, we pray, that we might extend that to others. Help us to be people who forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. Help us to be encouragers as we are encouraged. Help us to have spiritual ears to hear what you're saying to us, even as we have conversations with other people here. Perhaps a word, perhaps a prayer, perhaps something they need to hear or perhaps just to hear them. Lord, we thank you for the diversity that there is in your body and we continue to ask that you will pour out your blessings upon us just as you have in Jesus name. Amen. <laughs>